and welcome to episode 51 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Allegi. My co-conspirator, Peter Lim, is on assignment, but here in spirit. My guest today is Professor Dorothy Hodson, professor and chair of the Department of Anthropology at Rutgers University in New Jersey. She's a cultural and historical anthropologist with two decades of research experience in Tanzania, primarily in Maasai communities. Professor Hodson is president of the Association for Feminist Anthropology and the author of several books and numerous articles. Uh, her first two books, uh, the first one was entitled Once Intrepid Warriors, Gender, Ethnicity, and the Cultural Politics of Maasai Development, published in 2001 by Indiana University Press. Her second book was The Church of Women, Gendered Encounters Between Maasai and Missionaries, also Indiana University Press 2005. And she has not one, but two new books forthcoming. The first one is Being Maasai, Becoming Indigenous, Postcolonial Politics in a Neoliberal World, coming out just at the end of the month with Indiana University Press. And an edited volume entitled Gender and Culture at the Limit of Rights, to be published by the University of Pennsylvania Press later this year. Okay, welcome to the program, Dorothy. Well, nice to have me. Nice to have you here. Well, when one thinks of the Maasai, you think of among the most photographed Africans, right, and, uh, almost the archetypal tribal, right, in quotation marks, African people. In my class, when I asked the students, uh, you know, when you think of an African uh, nation, what do you think of? They say either Asante, Zulu, or Maasai, inevitably. Uh, yet it seems clear from your work that Maasai-ness is not only malleable and changing, but also in this kind of, in its idealized form, it seems almost impossible to sustain under contemporary conditions. Uh, your thoughts? No, absolutely. I mean, they are the kind of most photographed. They're in many coffee table books. I mean, there's endless um, movies about them. And, you know, much of my work, and it's partly why I'm both an anthropologist and a historian, has been to try to look at the history behind the production of those stereotypes. And then, again, what it means to kind of everyday experience of living with those stereotypes shaping the kinds of um, interventions into your lives and attitudes of other people towards you. And so my early work, um, Once Intrepid Warriors, it was precisely that. It was looking at how these stereotypes and images um, shaped initially colonial interventions into their lives and then later even post-colonial interventions and, and coupled with then looking at what was really happening on the ground. You know, the fact that of course none of us are stereotypes, none of us live fixed lives, that culture is dynamic. Um, and so trying to understand um, both the kind of uh, melding, the kind of cultural and political and economic aspects um, through a historical lens of their changing lives. And so um, the contemporary dynamics most recently are very interesting because of um, their own efforts in a sense flip those images on their head with, in my forthcoming book, um, Being Maasai, Becoming Indigenous, the efforts of many Maasai um, uh, activists primarily to actually say, all right, fine, so we are, you know, the beautiful people and one with nature and so forth, you know, using those um, stereotypes to then make claims to their links with the indigenous rights movement, the international indigenous rights movement, and, and making claims about being indigenous peoples and so forth, which is, uh, not surprisingly, a somewhat controversial claim in an African context, um, and especially in a country like Tanzania, where there really wasn't the kind of large extent of settler populations as in South Africa, or even to some extent in Kenya, 
Um, and, and so my work is not trying to assess are their claims true or false, but really trying to understand historically and ethnographically how and why they're making those claims and what are the kinds of political possibilities as well as limitations that that, that kind of political positioning um, allows. Because the, the large overriding question is about um, you know, what are really the political opportunities in this contemporary world for a people like Maasai who have been long marginalized, who, you know, I, I've spent my career documenting, you know, the kind of decades of struggles that they've had to try to retain their land, to, to um, have control over their livelihoods, to have really self-determination in the broadest sense of the word uh, of, you know, choosing what language they want to speak and, you know, which kind of cultural practices and so forth they want to continue. Um, you know, what is possible in a world where state and capital are so firmly aligned now in, you know, again, using my terminology and that of others, the kind of neoliberal world and the ways in which the legacies of colonialism at a very fundamental level, level legacies such as the nation state, right, level, legacies such as the kind of fixation on ethnicity and kind of um, ethnic categorizations, legacies around, you know, what it means to be a citizen and, and, and efforts to create kind of nationalism and so forth, what, how those play into this congruence then with these kind of neoliberal economic and political formations, which are not, I mean, as I argue in my book, it's not that um, this is all completely um, oppressive because part of what's happened is that it's opened up and created new political spaces precisely for these NGOs. Um, and activists to try to kind of challenge the state in new ways. And so, you know, this issue of kind of Maasai cultural identity is a, um, is in a sense now has, has I think long been fairly oppressive for them, but is now one that they're really trying to use as a card to kind of play into and position themselves in international debates around indigeneity, around, of course, environmental um, rights and issues and so forth. Um, to kind of, you know, get a seat at the table, if you will. And I think, you know, as always, you know, that's a troublesome card. I mean, when you begin to play that, as we know from, you know, many of the cases in Latin America, um, you know, all someone has to do is show that you really don't live that way, right? Is to show the picture of you in your T-shirt and your blue jeans and, you know, drinking a Coke to say, well, you know, what's indigenous about that? And so there's some real, um, uh, I think, precarious kind of political consequences to some of that. Nonetheless, Unfortunately, I think it's also been one of the only political spaces, you know, that have been open recently to them. Um, so it is, you know, the cultural identity is there. It's, you know, in the foreground. And, you know, I think it's very interesting to kind of take a historical look at kind of how it plays out at different um, political and economic and historical moments. And we'll return to this issue uh, later in the conversation. But I wanted to bring you back to uh, your fascinating study of uh, the intersection of, of gender and culture and identity uh, from your book Church of Women where you showed how Maasai women came to dominate local Catholic communities after World War II and it reminded me actually of Latin America where you know in the everyday life of the church uh, it's very much women mm -hmm. uh, who dominate as well as uh, my home country of Italy where you know you, if you walk into any mm. church uh, on any given day you know nine out of ten of the worshipers perhaps are, are women. Um, so how has women's participation in these Catholic communities uh, uh, as you put it, quote, enhanced women's spirituality, uh, strengthened their sense of moral authority, and provided them with an alternative female community beyond the control of men. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yes, well, <laughs> that's a big claim, isn't it? Um, you know, as I, as I argue in the Church of Women and have, you know, subsequently as I've continued to do research after, you know, that research was completed, I don't even, 2001, two, I think. Um, you know, women, you know, the question that was driving that, there were several questions driving that book, but one was kind of how and why women flocked to the church in the ways they did. And the Catholic Church, which I worked for and which I respect, but not necessarily known as a kind of bastion of feminism per se. And, um, and it was very interesting um, because women really saw it because Maasai women historically, um, well, first of all, because Ngai, the Maasai divinity, if you will, is predominantly a female divinity, um, Maasai women, you know, already were perceived, perceived themselves and were perceived by men as having a particular kind of linkage to Ngai. And women were seen as really the kind of moral authorities in the community. And they had ways such as um, uh, forms of collective protest, such as okishoroto, which is one where if a, if a man slept with a classificatory daughter or with a pregnant woman, which was seen as a kind of uh, moral outrage, the women would collectively mob together and attack the man and burn his house and, you know, uh, sometimes kill some of the cattle. Um, and it was a way, and it was a, it was a, an understood form. And when women would gather for there's another one called um, Olorishi, when women would gather together for their fertility gatherings and request contributions for men from men. And if men did not contribute, they also could become the subject of mobbing. And this was a legitimate, recognized, and men knew and, and feared this. But you know, there were other ways in which you know women kind of praying from morning to night and so forth. That women were really central to kind of the daily. Um, reproduction of the moral and social order. And so when the Catholic Church, when the Catholic missionaries in Tanzania finally started coming in in the 1950s, initially their primary evangelization strategy was um, through uh, schools, and the schools of course were primarily for boys. But when they opened up their strategies to going to the homesteads, women flocked. And women see the, saw the church, as, as I document in the book, is really a space that it wasn't about kind of converting to Catholicism is necessarily changing from you know believing in what we might call Maasai religion to Catholic religion but really a way of just another place in sight to pray to God to sing to God to you know be together in the presence of God and so they really saw it as an enhancement of their already fairly um, strong religiosity um, and so, you know, much to, I have to say, the missionaries' despair, you know, this became a place for them. And this was happening at the same time that, um, that um, some of the formerly kind of collective activities of women, such as going together for water and for wood because of, you know, changing settlement patterns and mobility, there was a much more um, individualization of women's labor. And so they were kind of having to do many different tasks during the day and they couldn't do it collectively. So again, the church, both the formal ceremonies of the church, which you know they saw as very spiritual, but also the space of the church, both before and after the actual services, became a site for women to kind of come together and network and see. And so, as I talk about in the book, you know, at um, two of the the churches in particular where I, I, I did my research, women would start coming sometimes an hour, hour and a half before the service and sit around and talk and circulate, and it really became a space of kind of networking and so forth. And so, you know, at the time that, you know, I published A Church of Women, as I argued, it wasn't that this was somehow a feminist space, but it really did seem to have kind of a potential there in that 
you know, I, among others, have long seen and argued, and there's lots of evidence, you know, um, in Africa as elsewhere in Latin America as well, of kind of the power of women as a collectivity and when they come together. And that is, is a way of kind of um, uh, arguing for and working towards certain kinds of justice. And in fact, the talk that um, I'm going to give uh, in a little bit here at MSU is really kind of documenting that and actually looking at the role partly of the church, so the women that I talk about today have not been so actively involved with either the Catholic or Lutheran church, but in this case actually NGOs building on some of those networks and certain kinds of certain educated Maasai women have been able to kind of build these networks of women and how they as a collectivity have recently um, had several of these collective protests. So they, for example, there is a, a hunting company that came in from the United Arab Emirates that, that with the permission of the Tanzanian government was given 4,000 square kilometers of land as a, as a hunting reserve and they fly in huge airplanes with vehicles and machine guns and other things. The women at one point gathered together and lay down on the airstrip so that the plane couldn't land. What I, I'm going to talk about this afternoon is re recently happened but not documented because the media for reasons I, 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 um, I can't get into um, but over 1,500 Maasai women with children on their back gathered in Loliando, a town in Ngorongoro district, and turned in their party membership cards to CCM, Chama Chama Penduzi, the long-time long sole political party in Tanzania, now in multi-partyism, the dominant one, turned in their cards as a protest against what they had seen as corruption, as the burning of Maasai homesteads that happened about two years ago in Loliando, as the efforts to expand the buffer zone around Serengeti. And so what we're seeing is kind of a continuation in form of these, these historically documented forms of collective protest, but now with new kinds of agenda. So it's not so much about a man sleeping with someone he shouldn't be sleeping with, but it's now using that form of collective mobbing and so forth against what they see as corruption at the level of the government and even of some of the kind of Maasai leaders and so forth. And so there's been this kind of interesting trajectory. So where and how the Catholic Church necessarily fits in there, you know, you can never, I think that's hard to say, but I think, you know, the, the providing these spaces for women to come together, whether it be in the church, whether it be through NGOs or income generating projects or other things, are really important spaces for women to share information, to talk, you know, share news, gossip, and, and strategies and kind of come together um, in certain ways that I think we're seeing as very politically, um, and symbolically powerful right now. And you've worked uh, quite closely with the Pastoralist Women's Council, one of these organizations. Right. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating organization. In fact, it's the one, you know, not necessarily behind these things in uh, the airstrip and the CCM card, but, you know, I think s some of their activities in terms of mobilizing women and educating them about their rights and actually key both for them and the Maasai Women's Development Organization. These are the two primary Maasai Women's Organizations in Tanzania. A key um, part of their programs has been the education of Maasai girls and trying to get girls through, um, well, first to stay through primary school and then into secondary school and for a few perhaps into higher education. And, um, and they've been very successful in um, working with especially Maasai women and the Maasai women who I interviewed and and members of PwC and Wedo, who I, I, I've talked to, I spent um, 2005 and six a year back in Tanzania doing some of the research around these NGOs and this kind of gender justice project I'm working on now. 
they were adamant about we want to educate all of our children and we especially want to educate our girls and that's a very different discourse than I was hearing in the mid-1980s and the early 1990s. Um, and so Passler's Women's Council has, um, you know, it, what's, what's very interesting about them is that it's located in the communities. It's not located in Arusha or in Dar es Salaam. Their headquarters are kind of centered in these rural communities in Ngorongoro district. Um, the leader of it, Mondo Ngoitiko, who kind of by dint of of uh, her own um, kind of will and then a lot of help with various men and women and institutions along the way um, was able to get a secondary school education and she's from that area but then also returned to the community to kind of give back to the community and help to build PWC um, you know, it's been able to kind of expand across this area um, in terms of pursuing the education of girls. They have what they call a very interesting thing called the Women's Solidarity Boma, which has become a haven for some widowed Maasai women and Maasai women who otherwise have fled abusive relationships. It has, they have a livestock herd that they kind of buy and sell livestock and they use the profits to help to educate girls. Um, but it's become this really interesting kind of space, again, of collectivity, of kind of women's collectivity. Um, and they're doing a lot of, you know, kind of educating women about, you know, various aspects of their rights and so forth. And, um, and what's interesting is that, you know, like many of these NGOs, they, in, as required by Tanzanian law, they have to have a kind of board, a, an advisory, supervisory board. Unlike many of these NGOs, the advisory board are the rural illiterate women whom they are serving. And what I found really astounding about this organization as someone who's looked at many of these organizations is that the women leaders felt so much ownership of this NGO. They was like, you know, this is our group. These people, including Monda, the head of it, they work for us. You know, a sense of real kind of accountability and ownership. And, you know, this, this is our... Yeah, this is our organization, and um, I think that there's a lot that Monda and PwC have done to kind of cultivate that, and you really sense that power and that pride in, in, in having that organization. And as I said, you know, I think some of the ripple effects of that have been precisely these kinds of collective protests and so forth I was talking about earlier, and, and the willingness of women to kind of step up and say, enough already, you know, this is, we as mothers, and it is a very kind of maternal, it's posed in very maternalist activist terms. You know, we as mothers, you know, we need to feed our families. We need the land to do that. We need, you know, our livelihoods. We want our children to have a future. The men aren't doing a whole lot to make that happen. And some of you guys are corrupt and, you know, we've had enough. And really kind of standing up and standing up against, of all things, CCM, the political party, which is very powerful. And this is not without a great deal of controversy, at times violence, threats, and, and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's quite admirable and I was going to say the grassroots ownership um, probably brings them into conflict with the Tanzanian state um, at times and maybe urban folks who have particular ideas and who are also incidentally um, networked with international organizations uh, and the indigenous people's movement has really grown tremendously over the last 10-15 years and your new book of course uh, looks at what happens when marginalized people such as um, uh, the Maasai women at the heart of the Pastorist Women's Council uh, join forces with these transnational uh, indigenous people's movements. So can you tell us a little bit about this process? Yeah this was very interesting I mean um, you know 
the first African to address the uh, United Nations Working Group on Indigenous Populations was a Maasai man, Maringe Parkipun, and he was a member of, I knew first met him as, when he was a member of parliament from this very district in Gorongoro district. Um, he left that, he started actually one of the first NGOs, Kipok, um, he's now left that and, you know, doing various things, but, um, Ma, you know, he was at the forefront of this. He was in Geneva in 1989 and gave the, um, you know, the first kind of was legitimate kind of talk and presentation. He made a very compelling speech that's all over the internet and parts of it are in my book about why, how and why pastoralists and hunter-gatherers were indeed indigenous peoples and, you know, and then of course Maasai particularly. Um, and so for about, you know, starting at about that period in the early 90s, and this was, this was mirrored across the continent because other, um, you know, other African groups from South Africa and elsewhere were also slowly beginning to get involved in the international indigenous rights movement. And with the, the help of particular international advocacy groups, particularly what's known as IFGIA, the International Work Group on Indigenous Affairs, which is based out of Copenhagen in Denmark, um, and they were helping to, to promote this notion of kind of the relevance of the concept and the politics of indigeneity on the African continent. Um, but for about a decade, Maasai um, from Tanzania and actually many more from Kenya, interestingly, and I, I can't get into kind of how and why that's the case. I think it's about the history of kind of how the politics of ethnicity in the two countries. Um, were very involved and they were going to Geneva, New York, and the NGOs were represented. and. Um, you know, what they learned from that was, you know, kind of this epiphany of it's not just us, you know, this sense of it's not just us who are being kind of discriminated against, but there's a kind of structural issue across not just the continent, but across the world, you know, and a real sense, and, and they argue very forcefully for a much more capacious definition of indigenous people. So indigenous peoples, the prior kind of definitions, and the, the issue of definitions is one of long debate in the movement, was one of you had to show historical continuity and you had to be kind of first peoples, right, whose settler colonies had, had upset. But because of the involvement of these groups like Maasai from Africa, and then of course similar groups from Asia who had a similar kind of history to Africa, um, they began to argue for what they call a structural definition of indigeneity. That meant that, which means that yes, we, we aren't arguing that we're first peoples because of course the migration of Maasai is very central to their own sense of identity, but we share a similar structural position to indigenous peoples elsewhere. That is that we are being discriminated against because of our cultural difference, because of our livelihoods, because of um, you know, the ways in which we use land and so forth. And you know, this has a long history starting in the colonial period through to the present. And that structural definition has really become one that's now much accepted in the international movement. They, so they learned kind of comparative strategies. They learned how other people have dealt with the state and you know, the use of media and other kinds of advocacy techniques. But then about seven or eight years ago, most of the Tanzanian um, groups and activists actually backed down from being involved in the, the international movement because they, and they made a, a series of interesting kind of shifts in kind of positioning as, as I talk about it in my book, which is, they shifted from working at kind of international level advocacy to really trying to figure out more effective ways of engaging the state and doing national level advocacy. As part of that, they pretty much quit using the kind of discourse of indigenous peoples and indigenous rights to frame their struggles and started using the discourse of pastoralist livelihoods 
So one that was much more kind of economistic and in kind of a development language, but one that was the state was less hostile to. Because part of the shift was that the Tanzanian state, like many states, was just so absolutely hostile to the notion that Maasai or anyone else was indigenous peoples. Um, and then they also renamed themselves. They quit becoming non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and became civil society organizations, CSOs. And again, we see this mirrored kind of, I think, across the global south. Um, and so part of the book then looks, because the year that I was doing the intensive in ethnographic research, they were trying to shape the new livestock policy. And it looks at their efforts to try to shape that, to make that more um, respectful of and supportive of extensive pastoralists you know, forms of livestock production. Um, they didn't have so much success, but they learned a lot, and they were actually able to, to apply a lot of the lessons they learned at the international level to that. And so they've since learned from that, and now are working on, you know, they used to have a range management act. The new version is the livestock feed policy. Um, there is stuff around wildlife, and so they're really trying to figure out how to, to, um, to have some influence at the national level. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, you know, it's a mixed set of lessons, but um, the indigenous stuff was very powerful. And in, in terms of uh, their fight for land rights and, and for education and anti-corruption efforts and so on, has this shift in strategy uh, brought some positive changes in your mind, or are there uh, positive changes on the horizon? Has this, because I'm thinking also of the social movements in South Africa that have arisen since 1994, and how they too have adopted this, um, um, uh, sort of uh, multi-pronged strategy mm -hmm. that increasingly tries to work with the state and within the state and within the avail available rights and, and structures uh, to achieve their ends. Um, so, uh, yeah, I and think they've been so. I mean, you know, they're not, you know, the grand successes we would wish for, but, you know, it's also how you measure success. I mean, I think that education has been crucial. I mean, what we're seeing is the real importance of this generation of educated young men, some of whom I helped to teach at secondary school in the mid-1980s, but you know, two of these prominent Maasai activists then went on to law school. So they're lawyers, so they can read those acts and those policy documents, and they understand you know, that are hundreds of pages thick, and they understand that language, and they can distill it, and they can figure out how to fight it. So having them you know, with that really acute sense of policy and legal strategy has been key. Um, unfortunately, the education of Maasai women at that level is about a generation behind, but they're coming up. And so we're seeing people like Manda leading PWC, people like Ndanini Kamisera, who leads the Maasai Women's Development Organization. Um, we're seeing now, I mean, you know, one of the recent shifts are we're seeing increasing numbers of Maasai become, you know, members of parliament and active politicians. One of the, the um, changes that, you know, I'm most hopeful about is that there's, um, uh, Actually, he was a former priest who I were, who actually took over my job at the um, the Catholic Church, the Arusha Dawson's Development Office, um, and then he formed his own um, quite successful NGO called Courts. His name is Benedict Nangoro, and he's now a member of Parliament. And he ha he he filled in for someone, and now he's just been reelected in the last set of elections. And he's now become the assistant minister and is assistant in the Ministry of Livestock. And that is huge. Just, I was back in Tanzania in January, and you know, I get the papers, and the discourse is just usually awful about pastoralists. You know, they've got to settle, and they ruin the land, and they're responsible for climate change, and you know, desertification, and everything else. But his discourse, he is a Maasai himself, he is a pastoralist, he has been working on and researching. He has a, um, a master's degree um, from the UK. 
that looks at some of the history of this development, you know, and his discourse is just so very different, right? It's about actually the only thing that this land can support is extensive forms of pastoralist production. It won't support intensive ranching nor commercial agriculture. And, and he's now getting in the press and becoming a different kind of voice. And, you know, that's one person, that's a long process. But what, what I have really seen is, you know, in the case of him and other people, that one person can really make a tremendous difference, you know, just as someone who's willing to kind of challenge that order and, and to put forth a different kind of discourse and different way of being. And, and I don't want to, I'm not one for kind of heroic narratives because they become that through the help and enablement of lots of other people and institutions and organizations. But, um, you know, Am I terribly hopeful? I can't say. I mean, I think the alliance of state and capital, as I said, is just very tremendous right now. And, you know, the degree of foreign investment and the way that, you know, land is being taken despite supposedly, you know, land laws that um, protect kind of village level rights and collective land. Um, but these people, you know, they give me hope and they keep working at it and they have hope. So, you know, I need to do what I can. You know, I'm not an activist. I'm not an advocate. I'm an I'm an academic. I, I position myself as an interlocutor with them. I, um, but I think my sympathies are pretty clear, and so I try to do what I can to, you know, help them work more thoughtfully and, and act more thoughtfully in what they do by bringing up, for example, comparative experiences in Latin America or South Africa or someplace else. So um, I don't know. You know, it's. Um, it's a. It's been a long haul. I mean, I've documented now about a hundred years of this. You know, I'm not sure. I, I certainly won't be documenting the next hundred years, but um, you know, it's 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 dynamic, and you know, I guess we'll see. And they do have the alliance of some key international donors and advocacy groups. And you know, again, it is multi-pronged. It's not that they've given up at the international level. It's that they really are trying to figure out how to how to shape the state, you know, and maybe use strategically certain kinds of international donors and so forth um, to, to, to make some things happen or to stop some other things from happening. Well, thank you very much for sharing your insight and wisdom and knowledge with Africa Past and Present, Dorothy Hudson. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>